Last week, we looked at the first part of 26, and we looked at three worshipers, three types of worshipers. And Matthew, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, lays out three individuals, Mary, Judas, and Peter, and gives us this picture of what a true worshiper looks like, a humble, repentant true worshiper, a prideful, unrepentant false worshiper in Judas, and then a prideful but repentant true worshiper in Peter. And I hope you were encouraged because obviously Mary's the ideal, but I think if we're really honest, it's hard for us to be Mary as men. We just have a hard time sitting. We've got to be doing. It's very rare that you find men that want to just sit at the feet of Jesus. And, and so Mary, even though she's the ideal and that's what's laid out, hopefully we can attain to that more than likely we fall more in line with Peter, who was very prideful, a guy who tried to do stuff for God. He loved Jesus. He did love Jesus. But he just tried to do it all in his flesh. And I see so many guys who do that. I did that. We all do that. We grow up in a culture that says you've got to pull yourself up by the bootstraps. You've got to be the one to do it. If you don't do it, nobody will. And so we try to, we just try to will our way through until God continues to put us on our back like He did Peter to where we go, okay, we have, we, we have nothing left. And, and yes, He's right. And we've got to take Him at His word. And if He says you're going to betray me, then we go, okay, God, I'm sorry, I'm going to do that. Tell me, what, what do I do in response to that? Instead of, no, I, not, I won't. I'm not going to do that. And, and so he, we see that last week, and then we go into this section this week where we see a picture of Jesus contrasted with the disciples. And as we look at this, what I want us to see is, I mean, last week and this week to me are some of the most encouraging passages in the Scriptures. I mean, this is the culmination of why Jesus came to earth, guys. What we're going to see this week and as we finish up Matthew 27 and 28 is the message of the cross is a hope-filled message for us that I think sometimes gets lost in our past. In other words, what I mean by that is we embrace it for a moment to become a part of the family and then we forget that we need the cross every day. We forget that we need to come back to the cross every day, one, to be humble, and two, to be reminded that there's a lot of people out there that have not bought into it. And we get so focused. And I remember I was talking to a guy not too long ago who who has been a believer now probably about 15, 20 years. And he was so frustrated, so frustrated with a guy he was trying to share the gospel with. And I reminded him, remember when I was sharing the gospel with you 20 years ago? You didn't want anything to do with it? Oh yeah. You forgot that. See, we forget. And, and like Peter... They may all fail. I'm better than they are. We, we can adopt that attitude of self-sufficiency. And I'm going to tell you, self-sufficiency is diametrically opposed to following Jesus. Absolutely, 100% diametrically opposed to the plan of God. He does not want you to be self-sufficient. He wants you to be God-dependent always. And that's what this message is today. He, he lays out 
the calling on our life, and what we're going to see in this this section 20, uh, 36 through 75 is that God calls His children, you and me, to obey our calling even when our flesh resists. Even when our flesh is going, no, 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 I don't want to do that. He calls us to obey. And we see that modeled in Jesus. And, it, and I'll, we'll make a couple of notes about that section when we look at that. The second thing is He calls us to stand firm when our calling is costly. In other words, don't bolt. Just because the heat goes up, the pressure gets higher, we don't bolt. We stay put. We stand firm. And again, He models what that looks like for us. This is what I love about Jesus. He doesn't tell you to do something that He doesn't demonstrate to you. Isn't that awesome? Hebrews 4 says that we have a high priest who understands everything we experience. He's not a priest who doesn't sympathize with us, who doesn't understand our weakness. And so He models this stuff. And then the last thing, He calls us to rely on His strength when He provides opportunities. He's going to bring opportunities in your life. Opportunities to suffer for His sake. Opportunities to witness for His sake. To testify. And when those opportunities abound, when they pop into your, onto your radar, is your first tendency to look inward for your own abilities, your own strength, or is it to say, Lord, I need You for this. That's what He was trying to teach the disciples. That's what Matthew's bringing out. And we're going to look at these as we read this. Now, just to set the stage again, remember, this is Thursday now in Passion Week. We finally we got away from Wednesday. We were in Wednesday a long while. But Monday, He comes down from Bethany. Remember, He, he goes back to Bethany after everybody praises Him. They think He's the one. He comes back on Tuesday, curses the fig tree, cleanses the temple, goes back on Wednesday, comes back, he's questioned about his authority, he starts teaching in the temple, he goes through the, the teachings on rebellion, why they continue to rebel him and reject him, but he keeps reaching out to them. Uh, he deals with their questions to try to trap him. And uh, he tells them about the end times as they leave the temple going back to Bethany after he pronounces judgment on the uh, Pharisees and the religious leaders. Uh, he tells them the temple's going to be destroyed. The disciples go, when are you coming back? He says, nobody knows the day or the hour, but this is what you need to know. Be ready. And on the Mount of Olives, he's up there. And now we're on Thursday where he has gone to the upper room he has celebrated the Passover cedar, the last Passover sanctioned by God. He sent Judas out to go do his bidding. Judas has already bargained with the priest. He's already asked them what are they going to pay him. We saw that last week when we looked at him. And then, now we're at the point where he's just with his eleven. Judas is gone. He's just got the eleven. And he takes them to the garden... If you've been to Israel, and some of you guys have been over there with me, yeah, he's over there, down in that area, down by the Kidron Valley. There's a oil press down there. That's why it's called Gethsemane. Geth Shemin means oil press, and it was a place. It was actually a room where they stored oil and they pressed the oil, 
And during this time of year, it wasn't used for processing oil. That was in the fall. So this time of year, it would have been vacant. And that's where Jesus was probably staying with his disciples. And he's taken the 11 out. Judas is gone. And as he's with his disciples, Caiaphas, the Sanhedrin, the Roman soldiers, the temple guard, they've all been plotting now. They're going to make their way over to this garden area and they're going to come get Jesus. And that's the backdrop for what we see in 26, starting in verse 36. So let's read it. And we're going to do it in sections. So we're going to look first at this uh, call to obey our calling even when our flesh resists. Starting in verse 36. Then Jesus went with them, His disciples is talking about, to a place, place called Gethsemane. And He said to His disciples, Sit here while I go over there and I pray. And taking with Him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, He began to be sorrowful and troubled. Now I want to stop there just for a second. Jesus was 100% human. 100% God and 100% human. And He was suffering. He knew what was coming. He knew what was about to transpire. He was not retreating from it and He did not want to go through it alone. And He took the closest to Him of those groups, the guys that He always took, Peter, James, and John. Wherever Jesus went somewhere and He only took a few, He took those three. It wasn't because they were His favorites. It wasn't because they were the best. He took those three because those were the three that God had ordained would be those leaders. They were sovereignly chosen to be those leaders that He would invest in. A lot of times we can look at people and go, well, they're there because they're the best. He doesn't use the best, guys, if you haven't figured that out yet. But He chose those three. And He said, come with me because He didn't want to be alone. I can remember when my wife was in China getting back four years ago. I got so sick, I got food poisoning. And I, I literally thought I was dying I, I, I did. I, I thought I was dying. I called my mom. I'm vomiting in the bathroom. And nobody's there. My kids are gone to school. And my wife's in China. I don't know who to call. I'm just sitting there. And I call my mom. Mom, pray for me. Can you just talk to me? I just want to hear your voice. I just felt so bad. I literally is the sickest I think I've ever been. And, and I just wanted her there. I just wanted to hear a voice. Jesus just wanted these men to be with Him. And He invites them to come. And He says, watch with Me. Now, that goes all the way back to Ezekiel. I mean, Exodus. Because back in Exodus, the night before the Passover was called the night of watching. And the reason it was called the night of watching, because guess what? The destroyer was going to come. And if you didn't have blood over your door... You're going to be killed. The firstborn was gone. And, and so, they, He said this is a night of watching and it's mentioned back in Exodus like that. And Jesus says, I want you to come watch with Me. And they couldn't stay awake even for an hour. Now, if you knew that there was a possibility at midnight tonight you were going to lose your life if you didn't get it just right, if you didn't have the prescription just right, 
Are you going to be sleeping and dozing off? I don't think so. I think you're going to be watching. Jesus was, he used that word watch with me very specifically. He says, watch with me. And uh, so it says, And taking with them Peter and the two sons of Zebedee began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. In other words, even to the point of death. I'm that grieved here. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and he prayed saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me for one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and he found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and he prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. The hour is at hand. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hand of sinners. Rise. Let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Jesus didn't run away. He saw the lights coming. I mean, you can picture it. I mean, when you see, there were probably somewhere between 600 to 1,000 men coming to arrest Jesus. All the torches. It was at night. All the torches you would have seen coming from Caiaphas' house down from the temple area across the Kidron Valley to the Garden of Gethsemane. You would have seen it. But he didn't run. He didn't run because he wasn't running. He was right there in the middle of it. This is why he came. And what's interesting is the first time he prayed, he asked God to take it away. He didn't want to do it. Now, it wasn't because he dreaded the physical pain. It might have been a small part of it. But more importantly was the spiritual darkness that he would experience when God the Father turned away from him. Never in the history of the universe had God the Father turned away from His own Son. It never happened. They were always in unity. Always together. But at that moment where He bore the sin of the world, the Father had to turn it away. And He did not want that to happen. And so He begs God. He said, please, if it's possible, take this away. And you know what I see in that that really encourages me? that the first time he prayed, he asked God to change the circumstances. It's okay, guys, if you don't like the path God has laid out for you initially. I mean, it's okay for you to ask God to change it. And I always wrestle with that because I was always taught growing up that, you know what, you just got to love it. You know, you just got to muscle through it and love it. That, there's no authenticity there. And so what happens is we begin putting on these facades and we act like we really love something that deep down we're really wrestling with. I'm just going to tell you, I did not want to adopt anymore after the, uh, the second child that we adopted. I was like, my quiver's full. I told Lori, I, we've got five children. I said, I, I don't know how I'm going to do ministry and I'm going to do this. Oh, Doug, i got more to give. i got more to give. I said, but that's, I, I've got to give it with you. <laughs> you don't just give it alone. 
But God began to change my heart. But that didn't mean I liked it at first. And it had nothing to do with these precious children. It had to do with me and knowing that when you bring them in, you have no idea what you're getting. You have no idea what the future is going to hold. You have no idea how they're going to respond to you. And yet you have the responsibility to care for them and love them and raise them. Not just for a day. Not just for a week. It's not just foster care that you can take them back. When you say, I'm adopting, you bring them into your family and you take responsibility until you are off the face of the earth. Especially if there's special needs. And there's been many a times I'm cleaning up vomit in the room of one of my special needs girls that needs care constantly. And I'm sitting there and I go, I hate this. I do not like this. God, is there anything you can do to change this? And there's not at this point. So I'm encouraged when I read this that it's not sin to struggle with the task God gives you. That's not sin. If it was sin, then Jesus wouldn't have done it. Right? Because He was sinless. So the first time He says, change the circumstances. But, then comes prayer number two. Where He says, not my will, but your will. And at that point, He moves from asking to change the circumstances to strengthen me through these circumstances. And He does the same thing the third time. You see, ultimately, guys, uh, it all boils down to my will or God's will every day. That's the Christian life. My will or God's will. Is, am I doing what He wants? Or am I doing what I want? Everything boils down to that. And, and what you see is a contrast in this first little section with the disciples and Jesus, Jesus perfectly models the struggle and yet the perseverance. And the disciples perfectly model what it means to have a desire in your spirit, but be weak in the flesh. Because they can't even stay awake for an hour to be with Him in a time where He needs them most. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine, you know, just... You know, Brad, I need you to come by, man. I'm really struggling. You come over to my house. I just need you to be with me, and every time I turn around, you're falling asleep on me. How does that make me feel? Not a lot of love there. I mean, I'm not saying they weren't tired. But for three times, you would think after Jesus rebuked them the first time, they'd get the hint, okay, we need to stay awake. What happened to Peter? Lord, I won't, I won't depart from You. I'll be the only one. And he's there falling asleep. Every time. It's a perfect illustration of when we try to do it in our flesh versus when we do it with God's help and God's strength. He calls us to obey our calling even when our flesh wants to resist it. And you know, I mentioned Hebrews 4 and 14 through 16. It says that Jesus is a high priest who can sympathize. Praise God. He experienced what we experienced and showed us that even when you go through these things, you can get through them. It won't always be like this. It won't. We can rest assured that no matter what diagnosis we get, no matter what relational struggle we have, it won't always be this way because this is only temporary. Anything we experience this side of heaven. 
So we can confidently say it won't always be this way. Now, it may be this way the rest... It, it could get worse here on earth. So don't believe the garbage that people put out there. Oh, God doesn't want you to suffer here on earth because that's not true. It's just not true. Nobody can tell you that. Only God knows that. Only He knows your path. But whatever our calling is, and we all have different callings, you know, for Dave, he's a business consultant. That's what he does. You know, for, for Tim, when Tim worked uh, for the government, he worked in that capacity. I worked in the government as a government law enforcement. That was, a, a, it was still a calling for me. We all have different callings, different paths. But whatever that calling is, he calls us to walk it and to be obedient, even when our flesh is saying, I don't like this. We don't leave our jobs because we don't like them. We leave our jobs because it says, okay, I don't want you to be here anymore. Plain and simple. You know, I just don't like my boss. Welcome to the club. I had so many guys in the Marine Corps that I didn't like. But, but that's where God had me. Until He said, okay. And then He began to show me where He wanted me to go. And that's what He does. When you're His child, He directs you. He directs you. I speak through my voice. Ah, that's what he says in John 10. Well, th here's an interesting thing. They were in this olive press area, right? Gethsemane. Do you know that an olive press, the way the whole thing works, first they take the olives. For you guys who went to Israel, you know this. They, they put the olives in a basket and then the oil just runs out initially. That's the pure virgin oil, the extra virgin oil. It comes out. It's the purest oil that comes out first. And what they do is they take that oil. That's used for the anointing. That's used for the stuff in the temple. That is the, that is the holiest oil. But then they, they take it and then they put the baskets on top of each other and it squeezes them more. And they put them in a press after that. They squeeze it three times. Three times it's squeezed. And they know that. The Jewish people know. To really get everything out of the olive, they, they take it through that process. Three times this press presses it down. And isn't it interesting that three times Jesus prays? Three times he prays. Right? I mean, there's just so much overlap, and the Jewish people get all this stuff. Some of the stuff we don't get necessarily, but they get it. There's no coincidence where he met. He picked out the exact place where they were going to be. He knew where it was going to be, he knew where they met. By the way, a guy asked a question one time I thought was really interesting. If somebody asked you where to meet Jesus, would you know where to tell him? Because at least Judas knew where to meet him. That was a good question, I thought. I thought it was a good question. Philippians 2.5 says that Jesus did not hold on to those things that were His, that, that God had power He could have. Instead, He emptied Himself. He became obedient to death. And that is why He was able to appropriate what He needed when He needed it because it was the strength of Almighty God. It was not in the human way. That's what He wants us to do. Our spirit is willing, but our flesh is weak. Well, Amen. the next thing He tells us is to stand firm 
when it becomes costly. In verse 47, it says, While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priest and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, The one I will kiss is the man sees him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Isn't that interesting? Brad brought out a point yesterday I thought was really good, Brad. I, to be honest, I hadn't thought about it. And I, and I went through, I don't think Jesus, or Judas ever referred to Jesus as Lord, ever. I think it was always Rabbi, teacher. But he never called him Lord. But the other disciples did refer to him as Lord. And I thought that was just an interesting insight. Jesus said to him, friend, and that word friend there is not an endearing term. It is a, it's used three times in Scripture and every time it's used, it's in a negative context. It's like an unknown. It's like, you know, like if I didn't know your name I'd, and I, or I forgot your name, I'd say, hey, buckaroo or whatever, you know, buster, you know, hey, man, <laughs> whatever. Hey, bub. Hey, bub. That's what it is. It's like, I don't know you kind of a term. Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and they laid hands on Jesus and they seized him. I just wonder what Judas thought at that moment. I just wonder at that moment when they actually went through with it and he saw him. There were 600 probably Roman soldiers plus the temple guard all there for Jesus. A guy who did nothing but heal people. He was not like the zealots. He never raised any kind of violent hand at anybody. He did turn over the temple tables and maybe, maybe that's what caused them concern because he went in and he ripped those tables up. He had taken a whip at one point. So maybe they thought, but I mean, he never raised a knife to anybody. None of his disciples did except here in the garden. But that's the Well, yeah, they were. But they but but six hundred guards, six hundred Roman soldiers, that's a little bit of an overkill. That's why they came. Yeah. But well, later but, Judas felt terrible about it. Well he did, but when they came there, you gotta remember what's the first he repented of it because he betrayed innocent blood. Well, remember what happened though when in John eighteen, when he shows up, when they show up he says, they're looking for him. He says, I am he. And they all fall to the ground. Remember that? Yeah. I think that's what empowered Peter to do what he's about to do. Because at that moment, maybe Peter thought, this is it. Okay, they all, I mean, 600 soldiers just went to the ground. I mean, that's a lot of guys. To just go to the ground like that. And, and maybe Peter, that's why he reacted the way he did. Let's go ahead and read it. It says, and behold, one of those who were with Jesus, stretched out his hand and drew his sword and he struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. What verse was that? that that's in verse 30, 51. 51. And 52, Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and He will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then could the Scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? And at that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. 
But all this has taken place that the Scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left Him and they fled. Then those who had seized Jesus led Him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following Him in a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, He sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priest and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put Him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, This man said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is, what is it that these men testify against you? But he remained, Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said so. But I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? And they answered, He deserves death. Then they spat in his face. They struck him. Some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? Betrayed, deserted, and mocked. And he stands firm. He stands firm through it all. When he's betrayed, he doesn't lose it. He doesn't say, Judas, how could you? He knew all along Judas was going to do it. Amen. Instead of trying to counter it, he just went with it. They, they bound him. Peter takes out his sword, whacks off it here. By the way, a couple of things. All these people who were there in the garden witnessed the 600 soldiers falling down. When he said, I am. Boom! The presence was there for a moment. They witnessed that. You know what else they witnessed? A restored ear. At least the ones up front saw it. Surely you don't think they didn't talk about that? Would that not have been something somebody would have said? He just put that dude's ear on. It was chopped off. I saw it chopped off and now it's back on. And they still rejected. They still rejected. The priests were there. The Sanhedrin was there with them. They were all in the garden that night. A lot of people there. And they still rejected. That, that, that didn't even make them blink. Because for them, it was never about Messiah. It was always about their power and their plan. And so when they took Him back, what happens and what we're going to see when we come back next time is that Jesus goes through a series of six trials. Three before Annas, Caiaphas, and the Sanhedrin. Three before Pilate, and uh, Herod, and the Romans. And, and so, what they're trying to do is, we know from John, Annas is the first one, and he's probably, Annas is the former high priest who's still regarded as the high priest, and Caiaphas probably wanted him to get some admission out of Jesus, so he lets Annas take a crack at him. And he can't get him to say anything. He's just silent. Can't produce charges. There's no charges. There's nothing on him. So he sends him. Then Caiaphas gets involved. 
and he can't get anything. The best he can do is bribe two guys to come up with the fact they twist what he said about tearing down the temple back in John chapter 2. And that's the best they got. They're trying to get him to say something that they can accuse him of sedition and go to Pilate and get Pilate to execute him. But they can't get him to do that. So finally they resort to just getting him to say something blasphemous. Saying something about God. But even that, you notice what he said? You said this. You said. And then he quotes, when he quotes uh, about the Son of Man, what he says about the Son of Man, when he says, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power. That's not an unbiblical statement, even for a Jew. The Son of Man was a biblical term coined back by Daniel. (coughs) So what he's saying there is really not unbiblical. They have no charges. It's an illegal trial. They're doing it illegally at night. They bribed people illegally. The high priest tore his garment, which was illegal. The high priest was never supposed to induce the Sanhedrin to go a different way. He merely arbitrated. He's like a judge. Could you imagine a judge, Amos, in the middle of a trial, standing up and saying, You're guilty! That would, that would cause a mistrial immediately in our justice system. That's not just. That's in the U.S. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, they, they, but you didn't, the way this system was set up goes all the way back to Exodus. When Moses put into place people to help him judge, that's, that was the basis for the Sanhedrin. They were supposed to have 70 guys with a high priest making 71. And they, what they would do is they would have charges, they would bring them, but they couldn't bring them at night. And, and they had to do the trial out in the open, not secret. And so all these violations, all these things going against God's law, does Jesus turn and run? Does He bring up all this stuff? No. He says, He stands firm. He, he just sits there. And you know, I think of Luke 6.22. It says, Blessed are you. Blessed are you when you are persecuted for My sake. Uh, what, what kept Jesus' followers from going after Jesus? Well, they were too scared right now. 600 Romans. Uh, yeah, they, I mean, they... I mean, well, uh, no, no, but, no, but what happened is they were so terrified of being crucified. I mean, see, for us, when we think back to that, we live in a very civilized culture, Jimmy. I was just going to tell you, our culture is very civilized. We can't imagine... Somebody just coming up to you, taking you, and, and taking you and putting you on a cross. They lived in a culture where at any time a Roman could say, this guy did this, and then they just put you up on a cross. So they were terrified. And for a lot of us, I mean, if you've traveled to other countries, I used to travel in Russia a lot. And one time, back in, I, t- I told you guys this story in 97, they took me away. They told me they were going to kill me. There's no recourse over there. It's not like I can say, well, I need to make a call to my attorney. <laughs> they, they just take you. In Moscow in 1995, 20,000 people disappeared. They just got the went. No, no record, not, no nothing. Because they were just murdered. And, and, and 20,000 people. I mean, that, that's unbelievable in one city. And so we live in such a civilized culture. When we read about the Bible, we forget... That the Romans controlled everything. And first of all, Pilate did not want to be in charge of, of, of Judea. That was not a, a great opportunity, a career enhancing opportunity for him. 
He was placed there and he'd already had problems and he knew that the Jewish people were trying to use him. So he was, he was not happy about all this stuff. That's why he kept trying to pawn it off. But he was really in a tight spot because if he, if he condemned Jesus, the popularity of the crowd, plus his wife is going, don't have anything to do with this man. He's a holy man. Romans were superstitious anyway. So he's wrestling with that. But if he doesn't execute him, then he's going to have all the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, the ruling class of Jerusalem and Judea against him. So he's really in a pickle here. But the disciples, they, it says they fled right away. They saw 600 soldiers and they beat feet. They got out of there. And I dare say any of us would probably do anything different. If we saw 600 armed people coming for us, that coming for the guy that we've been following for the last two years, I mean, that, that, that's, that was really scary for them. And, you know, we're pretty hard on them, but I really think that if we had placed in that position, it'd be very, we'd be hard-pressed to think that we would stand there and stand firm with him. Because when we, you walk through the countryside and you see people up on these poles, it, it, it is it's sobering. It's, very, it's like, I don't know if you've ever been to Mexico. I know when we were doing some of the drug stuff, some of the drug cartels, some of the stuff they did down there, it's scary stuff. I mean, they leave signs for people to put fear in them. And let me tell you, I, it, it, it affects you. When you start thinking about taking down a drug cartel guy, and you start thinking about him coming after your family, you start thinking those thoughts. So these guys were thinking, these Romans are bad guys. We don't want to mess with them. And, the, and especially if Judas was tied in with them now, he, have, he would like a tax collector would have the protection of the Rome, Roman guards and stuff. So, so here we are. Jesus is standing firm. But what we've got to remember is He's also modeling for us, His children, what to do when the cost begins to increase in our life to follow Him. In other words, when it, the pressure rises, when the heat gets on us, we look at Him as an example of this is what He did. He stood firm. He didn't bolt. Again, contrasted with the disciples, what did they do? They're out of there. Peter, he's out of there. Just a few hours earlier, I'll never leave you. They may all leave you. I won't leave you. And here he is a few hours later. He's out. But he follows at a distance. He still has enough in him. He wants to see what happens here. But um, Luke, Luke 9.23 says, If anyone comes after me, he's got to deny himself and take up his cross. There's a reason that verse is in the Bible, guys. Taking up your cross means you die to yourself. So that means even if the cost is your life, and this is a key indicator of people that are truly following Christ throughout history, when you look at Christians who were persecuted, they willingly lay down their life for Christ. Um, Jim Elliott, down in Ecuador, killed by the Aqua Indians, trying to share the Gospel with them, had a gun that he could have protected himself with. He had a revolver. But instead of taking that revolver and taking the life of the tribal people that they were trying to share with, he did not take up the gun against them. He willingly laid his life down because he did not want to use violence to try to... Now listen, when he's talking about the sword here, 
He's not advocating pacifism. That's not what he's advocating. He's just saying to Peter, Peter, if you take up the sword, you're going to die by the sword. Right now, if you take it up, you're going to die by the sword. He's not telling us never to take up uh, arms against somebody to defend life as a government, in the military, in law enforcement. There's lots of realms where you are allowed to do that to protect life. He's not talking about... He's talking to Peter about Peter acting against the will of God, taking somebody's life. He's saying, you do that, Peter, your life's going to be taken with a sword. Put it away. And then he heals the guy out of his mercy. And, and so, 1 John 2.6 says, walk as he walked. Again, he gives us a model of what it looks like. And Paul got that in Colossians 1.24. Paul says... I rejoice in my suffering for your sake. In other words, when we have to go through suffering, most often, if not every time, God's going to use it for His glory in the lives of other people. And, and so I've, I, there was this lady named uh, Kathy. I think I shared her story with you. She was at our church in the Woodlands, and she had cancer. And uh, she lived two years after her diagnosis. And that lady had the most joyful countenance I've ever seen on anybody who struggled with that deadly disease. And I watched her, and we prayed for her healing. But you know what? Every time we would see her, because she was good friends with my wife in Texas, she would talk about the people that she got to witness to at MD Anderson out in Texas on the cancer unit. And she says, you know what? I never would have been in front of these people if if I hadn't had cancer. And I got to tell them about Jesus. And this person trusted Christ. And she's so excited about that. And she just had this joyful countenance. Never once did I see her complain. Even though I know it was tough. Especially toward the end. Yeah. Well, I was thinking about Jim Elliott. If he sh- didn't a lot of those tribesmen become believers? Yes. If he shoots that guy, that guy it, dies it, unsaved. I, I know. And Jim Elliott knows he's He knows fine. that. Yeah. He knows he's okay eternally, but this guy is His wife went back. His wife went back and let him, and there's a movie about it called The End of the Spear, I think, or The Tip of the Spear, End of the Spear, some End of the Spear. So, so here's the thing. Are we going to stand firm when the heat goes up? When the heat begins to rise in our life because of Christ, are we going to stand firm? Are we going to run? Well, we go into the last section, 69. It says, Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, Another servant girl saw him and she said to the bystander, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied it with an oath. He swore. He said, I don't know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, certainly you too are one of them for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself. He began letting expletives fly. (laughs) It's funny, you know, the people from Jerusalem knew the people from Galilee what they sounded like. It's like us. If I start going, hey, I got to go out to the car. You know where I'm from? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, where, yeah where, where am I from? Where am I from? Boston, right? That's, but you know that. In the same way, they knew people from Galilee by accent. 
and they look down on them and they go, this is one of those guys. And you know what? He started cussing. And I'm not just talking about, you know, Dad Burnett. Uh, he's not saying, you know, son of a biscuit eater. He's not saying that kind of stuff. He's using expletives. He is saying vile stuff out of his mouth to be disassociated from Jesus Christ. Now think about that for a second. The guy who just a few hours earlier was saying, I will never leave you. I won't be the one to turn my back on you. In his flesh is now living out what Jesus said. The prophecy of Jesus is coming true. And it says, I, I do not know the man. And it says, immediately the cock crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, before the cock crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. Guys, over in Luke chapter 22, it says at that exact moment when he did it the third time, he was close enough to see Jesus and he looked into his eyes. He looked into his eyes and you know what he saw? He saw a reflection of who he really was in his flesh. He really saw who he was. And for the first time in Peter's life, I believe he realized how morally bankrupt he was. Because everything he had just done to separate himself from Jesus came like a big snowball rolling back on him. And you know what? That's where God wanted He said, yeah, he said, Peter, Satan's asked to sift you when you return. That's encouraging to me. You know why? Because what it means is with God, failure is not final, guys. And we live in a world that writes people off way too quick. But with God, He says, it's when you fail and you realize your need, then you will allow Me to be the strength inside of you. you when you realize how bankrupt you really are. And guys, for me, that night was back in 1994. And I remember being in the bed at 5 a.m. I woke up. I thought I heard one of my children. It wasn't my children. It was. I, I really believe God prompted me out of that bed. I walk into my bathroom, and on this big wall mirror, I just see myself. And what I look in the mirror and see is not Doug McCary, the guy that I thought I was. I see Doug McCary, the guy that I really was. I see all my sin. I see all my failure. All my self-sufficient attempts to live out my spiritual life. And I fell on my knees in the bathroom. I just started weeping. Just like Peter wept. I wept. My wife heard me. She gets out of the bed. Comes over. Puts her arms around me and goes, What's wrong? What is wrong? And I said, I see who I am. I don't like it. I don't like it. I don't want to be that guy anymore. And she, and she comforts me by the power of the Spirit, speaks truth into my life. And you know what? That was a change. That, there's two watershed moments in my spiritual journey. One was when the bird came through the windshield and almost killed me. And that moment in 1994 where God showed me, this is what it looks like when you try to live it on your own strength, Doug. Don't do that anymore. And it was that day that I resolved, okay, God, I am going to do it in your strength. I'm going to trust in you. I'm going to follow you. And, and did I do it perfectly? No, there's still times that I want to take up my strength and I want to try to do stuff. And he reminds me of that night every time I try to do that. 
Because what he wants more than anything else is for us to rely on his strength to live out the calling he's placed on our life. He's going to give you opportunities. And you know, the, the, the other thing I see about this passage, you can't be a secret disciple with Jesus. Peter tries to be a secret disciple. And what God does, he brings people, hey, aren't you with Jesus? He brings them into his life. Well, no, I wasn't with him. And then he brings another, and then another. Three times. Three times he brings people because faith with Jesus Christ is not a private matter. And that is a heresy that you hear in circles. I hear people say faith is a private thing. It is not. It is a personal thing, but it is not a private thing. It was never intended to be a private thing. Because God created you and me for a personal relationship where we depend on Him, we trust Him, we are morally and spiritually bankrupt and we have to depend on Him like a patient. Uh, nobody who has cancer is going to go through chemotherapy without feeling like they need chemotherapy. So we have to recognize we have a need. And when we recognize that, then we recognize He's the only one that can meet that. And He did it through Jesus on the cross. And that's what we're celebrating next week. The fact that He went to the cross for us. It's a really bizarre religious ornament. Isn't it? An instrument of execution, but it's our symbol of hope because He's not on the cross anymore. And we don't have to go to the cross because He went for us. And that's what He wants us to take away. That it's His strength we need to rely on. So as we close today, I want you to think about these three questions for yourself. Are you going to obey? Or are you going to resist the call He's placed on your life? Are you going to stand firm? Or are you going to run? Are you going to trust in Him? Or trust in yourself? Thank you. Father, we thank You for this time today. Thank You for Your Word and the reminder that You just want us to trust You. To rely on You to do Your will. Help us to do that. Lord, I know there's men here that are struggling in different areas to obey Your will. I pray, Lord, that You would help strengthen them. And if there's anyone here, Lord, that has not bowed their knee to You, I pray that today they would bow that knee to You and they would say, Lord, I am a bankrupt person and I need You. And in their own words, they would just acknowledge their need and then trust You. Thank You so much for the reminder. As we go, Lord, strengthen us for the battle. And may we go forth as Your servants. We love You and we praise You. Amen. Amen.